Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Hello, podcast, and welcome back to our next installment of Ecotones of the Spirit. Today's podcast was a long time coming, but we finally cornered Fred Bonson, director of the Wake Forest School of Divinity's Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing Program for an hour for our pod today. Besides developing the Ecotone event and the Regenerate Fellowship, we hope we are familiar with Fred's book, Soil and Sacrament, as well as his articles in Harper's, Orion, and Emergence magazines, among others. Fred is also a contemplative, a person of deep prayer, and today's pod is a unique contribution to thinking about how contemplative practices are foundational to activism and social change. So it's a joy to bring you this conversation with our friend, Fred Bonson. It is our joy um, to interview, I think for Anna and I, one of our mentors, and uh, certainly the person who brought us together, um, Fred Bonson, um, author, um, Director of Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing Program at Wake Forest uh, Divinity, um, and it's a joy to have you here. So thank you again for inviting us to be here at Warren Wilson College. Yeah, well, thanks to you both. Um, it's likewise, I love seeing you guys work and um, have really loved getting to know you over the years and uh, deeply grateful too for your serving on our advisory board with the Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing Program and lending your expertise in a lot of ways to help this program grow. So it's mutual. Well, and it's really because of these gatherings that this podcast exists at all. I mean, we came out of just being around tables and saying these are stories and conversations that could be shared. So mm-hmm. we want to thank you on behalf of the listeners for cultivating rooms of people that we thought well, these stories should be shared that then urged us to then start the podcast and share, share stories from people who aren't even in these rooms as well. So great. Um, so we always begin and curious uh, about how you would answer the question of what is your geography and share a little bit about um, how you understand that, whether it's land, people, food, music, however you understand geography and sort of who you are and where you're rooted. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, let me loosen my belt because I just had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> now I can answer the question. Yeah. I hear it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, geography. You know, here we sit in the mountains of Western North Carolina. I'm looking out on this beautiful scene, the farm here at Warren Wilson. Uh, black walnut trees and black locust trees here in the foreground, and farm fields and the river bottom in the middle distance and uh, mountains beyond that. And so at least in the the past 10 years that I've been living here in Western North Carolina, I've been really shaped by the geography of this place. Mm -hmm. And I think of this as a very maternal landscape. Mm -hmm. I feel very sort of swaddled here and nurtured and embraced in that kind of maternal sense. Uh, The landscape here is a very convoluted topography and you don't get many views unless you're up high and a bald. You feel sort of very much in, embedded in the forest. And I can come back to this. This is what's shaped a lot of my thinking recently around forests and trees. But uh, so I would say this place, living in this temperate rainforest in these Western North Carolina mountains, has been very influential for my, uh, for my prayer life and for my writing. Before that, you know, my, my upbringing really was in Montana. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Montana and the, the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, 
have had a huge impact on my life and have really, in a lot of ways, shaped who I am today. <clears throat> and I think early on I had a real, uh, just innate sense of God's presence in creation. Mm -hmm. That was just never something I had to make a mental leap to grasp. Uh, it was that sense of God's felt presence in the landscape early on as a child that really, I think, shaped me in a lot of ways. And so I think the rest of my life since has been a way of kind of working out what I experienced in childhood and um, being drawn to the contemplative strand in Christianity. Uh, you know, I've realized how much of the desert and uh, these places in Syria and Egypt, these wild places, have shaped Christian spirituality. Right. And that's really been true in my life. Um, so yeah, I would say between the geographies of here in Western North, North Carolina, where I live now, Montana, the mountains where I grew up, and then for three years, Nigeria. I lived there as a missionary kid in the mid-80s when I was age 10 to 12. Uh, so those three places have had a pretty big impact on my life in terms of place. I mean, I first knew of your work with Soil and Sacrament and... Um your books, Soil and Sacrament, and that had, or what I heard from it was a lot of work around food, and of course, the Food and Faith and Ecological Wellbeing Program, and um, I'm just curious, how has, and this is the Food and Faith podcast, so how has food um, been a part of that journey and shaped you and, um, and shaped both those geographies, but also, I think, my knowing of your journey, it's taken you different places and mm -hmm. taught you different pieces um, as you've pulled that, that thread of, of yeah. food and culture along with a faith thread. Yeah. Well, food for me, you know, growing up, I didn't have any interest in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And my mom uh, made me use her rototiller out in the garden in high <laughs> school, you know, and I just hated it. Just this noisy engine just yeah. bucking me around the garden. And, <laughs> So I, early on, <laughs> too, huh? <laughs> early on, I learned to, to dislike internal combustion, two-stroke engines, <laughs> which is probably why I gravitated to hand tools yeah. in my garden later. But my my uh, entrance into the world of food and agriculture was really twofold. One, reading Wendell Berry when I was in Divinity School uh, in the late '90s at Duke Divinity, reading Wendell Berry and realizing that this agrarian way of life made a lot of sense. There was just, it was an antidote to a lot of the problems we're facing in uh, this late capitalist society that we're all living in. Um, both the return to community, you know, the, the dignity of manual labor, um, the dignity of farm work, uh, the connection, the daily connection to the land through our food. All of that just made a deep kind of sense to me. And it was kind of like all kinds of light bulbs going off. <clears throat> I think the first collection of Barry I read was um, Sex Economy, Freedom, and Community. Yeah. And I was just hooked. And I read like 20 of his books. You know, I just went through this <laughs> Wendell Berry immersion, as many of us do. And I since I haven't read Barry in probably eight or nine years now. Um, it's It was like this intense read everything I could and then like 
it started to seem like he was writing the same essay over and over, <laughs> the same novel, the same poem. Um, and I mean that in no disrespect, you know, I mean, like, I think of Mary Oliver, as she's sure. been writing the same poem over and over. Yeah. In some ways, <laughs> and I'm happy to of, read them all. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of writers do that, and you kind of find your subject. But I found a need to kind of branch out and, and move on to other writers. But Barry had a profound impact on me. So there was that intellectual shift uh, facilitated by his writings, but I didn't really see it lived out anywhere in mm. North Carolina at the time. <clears throat> but soon after graduating from Divinity School, I went to Chiapas, Mexico as a volunteer. At the tail end of what was a low-intensity war in the late 90s, waged by the Mexican military against indigenous citizens in Chiapas. And the Mexican military was, of course, funded and trained by the U.S. military right. at the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Um, and that really pissed me off that we were training uh, Mexico's military uh, to wage this low intensity war against indigenous peoples. And I went down as a peace worker and uh, worked with a group called Christian Peacemaker Teams. And I realized I wasn't much of a peace activist. Um, I just, there was too much of this sense of being against something rather than mm -hmm. being for something, I think. Mm -hmm. And I saw, I saw the four uh, part of that, the, um, the positive uh, coming up with solutions to problems of militarism and so forth, lived out in these indigenous communities. Um, and they really had this, this deeply attractive agrarian way of life uh, where they were growing most of their own food, they were raising coffee as a cash crop, and um, of course, at the time, I romanticized their life. You know, they also uh, were materially poor in some ways. But as Gary Napham was saying earlier this morning, they were they were spiritually rich. They were you know um, they were rich in community life and connection, uh, and that taught me a lot. That was something I was missing in my American life back home. So the, that whole experience. Um, <clears throat> spending all of the spring of 2001 in Chiapas really made me want to learn how to farm and grow food and feed people. Mm -hmm. That was like my calling at the time. And I came back to the States and ended up working on a permaculture farm and learned, learned just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and off, off I was, you know, I was off and running at that point. Yeah. Where do we want to take it from here? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot in your yeah. biography that... Um, yeah, so where, I'll just would you, say, where would you like to go from here? Well, I would just yeah. say that the trajectory I've been on, I feel like has been one I've been on all my life in that I have this yearning, I would say, uh, for wholeness, for um, both places and people. and. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in many ways um, with this idyllic childhood in Montana with this pristine, what felt like a pristine landscape. You know, mm -hmm. I now have seen the wounds of that place uh, and the wounds in all of our landscapes are becoming more and more apparent the more that we learn about mm -hmm. what we're doing to our landscapes. But being imprinted early on with this vision of wholeness, I think, 
has been something I've carried with me ever since. So how does that show up, that yearning, like, show up now in your life and work? Like, yeah. How is that informing what you're going for? <laughs> or just how you spend your time and your days, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think... Um, so I've, the past couple of years, I've really been reading a lot, I'd say probably too much now, about climate change and, um, and all the ways that our society has been structured to create that problem. And then feeling overwhelmed at the possibility that we can reshape our society because that's, we can't just make a few yeah. you know changes around the edges and, and tinker with a few things and get a sustainable world it just you know yeah. you can't just swap out fossil fuels for wind and we're all good and everything's fixed right we need a fundamental reshaping of the way we do life the way we grow our food the way we derive our energy the way we transport our bodies uh, the way we govern the way we you know think about equity and um, all of that so all of that can feel pretty overwhelming too. Yeah. And um, I think any of us in this work uh, for very long, we, we can reach a point of burnout if we don't pull back and nurture our inner life alongside our, active, um, our activist life. So yeah, I think the past couple years, have been a time for me of um, grief and lament and finding ways to move beyond that. I love what the writer uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer says. She says something like, we have to move from love to grief to a more durable kind of love. Mm. Wow. And I just love that. that yeah. there's, there's a kind of trajectory there. Yeah. That grief is not the end. Grief is not where we sort of stop and give up. That we need a more durable kind of love. And I think that's where I found myself searching is how can I inculcate a more durable kind of love in my life so that that's showing up in my writing and the way that I lead and the way that I parent and am a spouse, all of that. <clears throat> But also not leaping to that too quickly. I mean, I think we mm -hmm. can cognitively say, I need to not stay in despair. I need a more durable kind of right, love, right. but not feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I feel myself moving in and out of that space um, of the kind of grief and despair to uh, the more durable kind of love. Uh, so it doesn't feel like a one-time move it feels like a dialectic and a, a back and forth yeah on a daily or weekly or monthly kind of cycle uh, but you know coming to gatherings like this really as as tiring as it is for the <laughs> leader uh, it's also really in, invigorating and rejuvenating yeah. and to be around you know you guys and and all of the other folks gathered that's what gives me that more durable kind of love because I realize I don't have to carry this alone. Right. Well, I think there's something power. I love that quote too, in that it's 
I want to rush through the grief part, but I think I also want to pretend that I've arrived at a place of true hope when I haven't. So I like that it's that there's love on both ends. Yeah. So it's not that that initial love, I mean, there's something good there, or there's a seed mm-hmm. of what is needed, but that for it to be more durable, that it has to actually go through. You, I, I have to, in my own heart and soul, yeah. <laughs> I have to go through some of that lament and grief and feel feelings and all yeah. that crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and this is, I think this is where I've been so drawn to contemplative prayer is just, that's just come out of a need, you know, this hunger of, I can't cognitively get out of this, um, this way of thinking that leads to despair and, and uh, edit, let me, let me edit that and start over. Um, Gary Nabhan said something earlier today about how he came to contemplative practice having sort of burned out as an activist. And yeah. that's that's my story in a nutshell. I mean, yeah. my time at Anatoth Community Garden, I didn't have the inner capacity, the inner prayer life, the inner contemplative practice to sustain myself. And I just kind of just ran out of juice after yeah. four years and just giving too much of myself to that project and not taking a daily sort of time to pull back uh, and, and rejuvenate. <clears throat> so it's been this huge gift to discover the Christian contemplative tradition. It's like all along, this is what people have been doing. Like, like we're not the first ones to burn out. Yeah. <laughs> we're not the first ones to burn out. And yeah. Something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duh. It's like, I can't believe, you know, it took me that long to find it and realize that. But yeah, that's, that's been a huge gift. Uh, discovering the, the Desert Fathers and Mothers and St. Isaac of Syria and uh, the English mystics and Thomas Merton. Um, I just wrote a long piece on Thomas Merton last year. and He's been huge for me. Uh, just realizing that, there's, a, as Merton says, there's a kind of violence we do to ourselves when we think that we can just keep working and working and working um, without pulling back in prayer. And so... My, my saving grace uh, in my own prayer life has been that discovery, just mm. pulling back on a, on a daily basis, ideally first thing in the morning, mm-hmm. and doing, doing contemplative prayer. Um, and that process has helped me see that I can just sit with everything. I don't have to... It's, it's not a... Um, uh, what's the word <clears throat> what's the kind of prayer when you ask God for stuff what's that like called again supplication intercessory so you're not yeah. making supplications you're not doing intercessory prayer you're just sitting in God's presence mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. knowing that God's mercy and love are enough yeah, yeah. that uh, we, it's not finally about us. It's mm-hmm. not finally about our efforts or lack thereof. Um, that God, God's mercy and love are all sustaining, even if we don't see it in the moment. And I have found participating in wake events now for several years and in several different ways. Um, you know, even this thing, we kind of refer to it as an intensive 
but you have always put sort of a very contemplative feel kind of underneath it all, um, whether it is, you know, doing laws in the morning or just the fact that it always feels more like retreat. Yeah. And then you discover there are a bunch of activists there. It doesn't feel like a gathering of activists and then we all try to quiet ourselves. Like, yeah. like I think you've really skillfully created space and that's what you, that's what unique about this program that you're calling many of us who, you know, who feel alone to feel together and then to be rooted in something deeper than just our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's been, that's one of the reasons why being here at Warren Wilson and being around Wade Div has been so important to me. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I suspect that's an intentional move on your part that just coming out of your personality, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to rest and that rest is actually going to empower our action. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, no, it does come out of my own need and, and really this whole course in a way came out of me just wanting to bring together uh, these different strands that had shaped my own journey and and uh, and looking around and seeing that the kinds of gatherings that tend to attract activists like us tend to be packed full mm-hmm. and you come away just feeling exhausted. <laughs> I've been to some of those. <laughs> um, and this is where um, yeah, the contemplative, uh, uh, I think of it as like, you know, herbs and spices or sort of, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of peppering a dish with different flavors. And I think of these little contemplative moments that we punctuate our day with as, you know, as being um, just vital to, to how this whole thing holds together. So it's really just what I've learned from others. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm having a connection in my brain, and if it doesn't work, we can edit it out. (laughs) I'm curious. So Gary was talking this morning. I'm just curious what both of you might think of this this intersection. Gary was talking about how within a geography that there is enough there that you know he could eat within a hundred miles out in the middle of a desert area, and just this idea that there's actually enough and we've I think we've heard a lot of good and powerful stories about what are the resources that are already in communities what are the resources that are already in the land and then when you were speaking about um, your own contemplative practice and that being in that quiet you realize that you are enough and that God Mm. loves us just Mm -hmm. because we are and that there's already enough that enough the enough word just caught me Mm. and I'm I don't have any, I'm, I'm throwing that connection out there. Like, yeah, what might great. there have something to do with us being able to be quiet and just be in yeah. the belovedness of our creator and that maybe also being true of our ecology and our systems and our Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that sense of enough and of, um, I'm seeing a link here between contemplative prayer and ecological limits in that so much of our consumption comes out of this hunger, this unfulfilled spiritual hunger. And uh, Merton, mm. Merton has this great essay that I drew on called From Pilgrimage to Crusade, where he says basically the, you know, the colonizers, the conquistadors, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the European colonizers who came to North America uh, were acting out of unfulfilled spiritual desire. Right. 
you know, and their, their inability to address their own spiritual need manifested as domination of others, right. conquering others and conquering land. And I, I just, I think that is such a profound insight that Merton had. Uh, and I, we see it manifested in the whole tech industry wanting to go colonize Mars, right? right. Like when we, when we ruin this place, we'll just go colonize somewhere else. Yeah as if we won't take ourselves with us when mm-hmm. we go. And so the, you know, the issues that we keep thinking have to be worked out at the level of tech or politics or activism, you know, so many of those just need to be worked out on the meditation cushion, yeah. the prayer cushion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I think of, you know, our insatiable need to buy things and be online and I, I see this in myself this is not a pointing fingers I mean <clears throat> uh, that desire for more yeah. uh, it, you know has really wrecked havoc on our ecosystems and really we need to look at how that desire can be fulfilled just sitting in God's presence mm-hmm. like if if we are enough then maybe what we have is enough yeah yeah, yeah. That could yeah. change everything. <laughs> it really could. More than just replacing fossil fuels with, you know, solar yeah. panels and wind turbines. Yeah. Though let's do that too. Yeah. Merton has this beautiful phrase that he borrowed from a Sufi scholar called Le Point Verge. And it's sort of something like the virgin point or the still point or the untouched place within each of us uh, reserved only for God. Mm. And I think that's that's the place I want to try to go more often. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can't help it, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't help thinking that, uh, you know, that's the place Trump needs to go. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the folks in Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. the people who just keep wanting to speed up our lives and throw more at us and conquer people and ecosystems, yeah. um, you know, would that they can find Le Pont Verge in their life uh, so that they don't have to enact that unfulfilled desire on others. This idea of crusade versus pilgrimage, mm-hmm. um, you've recently returned from something of a pilgrimage yourself, having been to Ethiopia, and so, and your work there with forests. Um, and the way that those forests are connected to spirituality. So I was hoping you could share a little bit about what that trip was all about um, and what you experienced there. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll put that trip in the context of the past couple years. So I've really, you know, writing Soil and Sacrament was itself a pilgrimage. I went and traveled around to these different faith communities uh, who were growing food and, and finding a renewed sense of their faith and spirituality through the act of growing food. And so that was what Soil and Sacrament was really about. Well, after writing Soil and Sacrament, uh, I've been, you know, the past seven years, I've really been developing this program at Wake Forest University Divinity School. And so I've been somewhat stationary in North Carolina. But in the past year or two, I've really felt this urge to travel on pilgrimage and, um, and really go in search of places and people uh, who are uh, 
bringing contemplative practice, contemplative prayer into their work, renewing landscapes. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a piece for Harper's Magazine called The Priest in the Trees about a priest, an Episcopal priest up in New England who is, uh, who has started this thing called Church of the Woods, uh, bringing contemplative prayer out into the woods. And that's, that's his sanctuary. That's their community's sanctuary is this tract of woods. And then I discovered this phenomenon called uh, church forests. And these church forests in Ethiopia are places where the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has become a kind of accidental environmentalist. Uh, they've just, through the act of saving these, uh, these forests, which range anywhere from a couple of acres up to 100 acres in size, they've, um, they've saved these, these old-growth tracts of tropical montane forest, uh, some of them a couple thousand years old. And I was really drawn to this idea because Ethiopia, like our country, has suffered so much deforestation. Uh, we don't see that so much because we, we have all this secondary and tertiary growth in our forests. But so much of North America has been deforested in terms of the old growth forest. And similar situations happen in Ethiopia, but there it's more visible because of uh, farming pressures and uh, the need for firewood. <clears throat> But so these remaining tracts of old growth forest all surrounding churches give us this powerful metaphor, I think, and this powerful image of uh, the church as this place that's holding the world together, you know, that's holding these forests together, um, and both literally and metaphorically. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> the priests in these places are forest guardians and they're they're drawing down carbon as we speak mm -hmm. they're helping draw down carbon yeah. just through their act of protecting these forests and i was drawn to to sort of find out what were the spiritual and cultural forces in place that kept those forests there and so that was really what inspired the trip and i'm, I'm still writing the article and um so I won't say too much about that now. <laughs> Read the article. Yeah. But I'm, I, I will say I, I am drawn to this idea of arcs, mm. uh, of creating biological arcs, spiritual arcs, cultural arcs that can survive whatever is coming with with climate change. And when you're saying arc, you're gesturing that like Noah's ark, not like an arc of a rainbow. Right. Yes. Yeah. The, something that yeah. a container that holds something. Right. Yes. Yeah, like Noah's Ark, uh, but not two by two, you know, hopefully more yeah. than that. Yeah, right. <laughs> hopefully more than just yeah. two of each species. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, my friend Miles Silman, who's a tropical ecologist, he refers to the region he works in the Amazon as the Ark because mm -hmm. of this particular region uh, in the upper Amazon basin in Peru is a kind of somewhat self-contained ecosystem. Uh, so I think that works on a biological level, but also we can think of it spiritually and, and culturally. As, yeah. you know, how can we save these pockets of life mm -hmm. that can withstand whatever changes are coming with climate change? Yeah. yeah, it reminds me, and I don't know, I don't know how to properly attribute it, and I don't know that it was properly attributed to me, but it was a quote somebody said that if the monks ever stopped praying, the world would stop spinning on its axis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this idea that there is something 
there is something genuine and real about contemplative practices and spiritual practices actually playing itself out in the natural world and, and to have that image and I think I've seen pictures of this where there's like there's a there's a gathering space and there's this forest and then around it is this is you know is just sort of deserted in some way shape or form if I'm misdescribing it you freed it but it's 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 a remarkable image that maybe that it maybe these contemplative practices of religious communities are actually are actually fundamental mm-hmm. to this to this climate change era and an Anthropocene era where we've got to rediscover those contemplative practices. If, if anything is going to, if the earth is to keep spinning, we have to keep praying. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. There's something, a line from uh, one of the desert fathers and mothers books, one of the introductions, something like through their prayers, the world is kept in being. Mm-hmm. Is that same mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm keeping the world from spinning off its axis. So yeah, and I was just in, um, speaking of monasteries, I had the chance to go to this this uh, Halki Summit, it's called, in Istanbul, mm-hmm. organized by His All Holiness, the Ecumenical Patriarch uh-huh. of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And this was a gathering on theological education and ecological awareness, primarily for Orthodox Christians but there were also a number of others like myself there, non-Orthodox. And one of, the, uh, one of those in attendance was a nun from Greece. And she said something like, well, her monastery where she was from, uh, it's on the slopes of this mountain near Mount Olympus. And they raise sheep and goats and massive gardens. And they, you know, they have an apiary with honey and just this, as she was describing it, it's this thriving agroecological uh, farmscape there at their monastery. And she was saying that monasteries were the monastics were the original ecologists. Hmm. Uh, and monasteries have in many ways been these kind of arcs yeah. uh, that I've, that I was just talking about where there are, um, there's a kind of cultural cohesion and spiritual cohesion that yeah. keeps that ecosystem alive and thriving. Well, I just think about this, just the, I mean, like praying the liturgy of the hours and the seasons of nature. I mean, there's just yeah. like that those rhythms are intertwined in a way that right. is so intentional and consistent. And right. And it's easy. I mean, I, I tend to romanticize the monastic life, and yet I'm not signing up. You know, yeah. I'm married and happily so. I'm guilty yeah. for that, yeah. of that too. Yeah. <laughs> I've already taken holy vows. But I think we Christians need to say, what can we learn from monastic Christianity and other, other forms of monasticism that we can pull out into the world? And, you know, the whole new, uh, the whole new monastic movement has tried to do some of that, but that's a very urban kind of mm-hmm. movement, I think, and they've done a little on the, the kind of gardening food stuff, but I think a lot more could be done in terms of pulling wisdom and practices from monastic Christianity and applying it to the food movement and, um, and the climate justice movement. So I don't have, you know, a whole grab bag of answers, but I know that, that there is a deep source of wisdom there in monastic Christianity that I think we can draw on. Yeah. Integrate in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. 
We always like to wrap up with asking what brings you hope. Yeah. Um, and answer that however, however you will. Yeah, what brings me hope? You know, most immediately in my life, it's my children, my three boys. Uh, I both fear for their future, but more than the fear is just this indomitable sense of hope that, that as long as uh, the image of God is walking the face of this earth, that good things will take place and that God is with us, uh, alongside us as we walk. And I see that divine image in the face of my children each day. Uh, and they're so different than me, <laughs> too. They're not, this is one Does thing that I've also learned. give you hope? <laughs> <laughs> that gives me hope, yeah. <laughs> they're not going to make all the mistakes that I did. That gives me hope. hope. Um, yeah, so, so seeing my boys and just their their curiosity, their insatiable love of life, uh, just that kind of childlike curiosity, mm-hmm. all those beautiful childlike qualities that, you know, that I think made Jesus say what he did about unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. And I think, you know, watching my boys, I've learned that, taken that lesson in. I think I'm also uh, hopeful when I gather with mm-hmm. you guys and the folks here. I, I get I get a lot of energy out of that. I get a lot of um, just uh, yeah. I get rejuvenated, and, and that gives me hope mm-hmm. that other people are doing this work. Yeah. Well, right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for continuing to gather people and. Sharing your story, and we'll look forward to the next articles and books coming out as well. Um, and that people listening to this pod can come to these kind of gatherings in the future. <laughs> yeah. So we're hoping our folks go read the stuff you've written and follow along with the work that you're continuing to do. So, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, uh, I've just joined Twitter, yes. <laughs> which I never thought I would Which is turned Twitter off its axis. I think I have all of like 86 followers at this point. I'm really, you know, really you got making, there faster than I did. <laughs> just wait till after our listeners. <laughs> so I'm on there, and yeah, I post some new stuff there. Um, What's your Twitter handle? It's at Fred Bonson, all lowercase. B-A-H-N-S-O-N. Where else? I've got new work coming out in Emergence Magazine this fall in their tree issue. That's where the uh, Church Forest Ethiopia story will appear, along with a short film. And I'm working on a long piece now for Harper's Magazine on what I'm calling the contemplative turn in Mm -hmm. American Christianity. Just this, this broader turn toward a more contemplative oriented faith that we've just been talking about but not just in the food and ecology movement but just more broadly in, yeah. in uh, you know, across the spectrum of Christian expression so you know evangelical, Protestant, Catholic more and more people I think are making that move toward a, a contemplative oriented faith so I'm profiling some of the leaders in that movement and Absolutely. visiting some of the places where that's showing up. 
and don't have a publication date yet, but sometime later this fall or next spring, that'll be coming out in Harper's. Great. And where was the Merton piece? I know I read it, but I don't actually remember where I read it. Yeah, so it's called On the Road with Thomas Merton. Okay. So if you Google that. It's an emergence magazine. That was an emergence as well. Yep. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Great work that you're doing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.